0: Good morning, everybody, or for those of you online, good evening, good afternoon, good middle of the night, wherever you are, Um, glad that you're here. Hey, uh, I want to throw this out really quick. Where are my engineers at? People that can build things. Think about them. Build them. I have to carry this podium up here every single week. I'm picturing something on hydraulics that raises it up out of the ground, right? And maybe another one for me. I could stand right next to it, and we could just come. Okay. You think about that. It'd be fun, right? Hey, Pastor Gabe, before I get started, she was was a little bit modest when she talked about our food pantry uh, last weekend. So uh, many of you know, if not, uh, right after service from like 1230 to 2, we do food pantry time out here. Uh, We have a couple volunteers. So between Pastor Gabe and a couple volunteers, we served over 30 people. Just in that short time frame. And I'm not talking about a minor little thing. Each one of them walked away with with bags full of groceries that blessed them immensely. And that is through, in large part, to your faithfulness and what you guys do to help out. So it's incredible. We are serving our community and we are making a difference even outside of the services. And I love that. Um, So, hey, again, welcome. Let's kind of I'll mentally reset here and we'll get going. Uh, Welcome to your visitors. If it's your first time in here or if you're online, first time, welcome. We are in a series called Blameless, a study in the life of Job. Now, I started thinking about this and people have commented like, what's what's the relevance and all that? And I just started thinking about it like this. If you knew... Like this morning, Pastor Gabe alluded to these internet problems that we were having. But if you knew that you had a friend, whatever it is you're going through in your life, whatever you're trying to figure out right now in your life, if you had a friend who had not only experienced that before, but had worked through it before, had done it correctly, had seen blessing, not only that, but had helped millions of other people with their issues and solved all of them, and knew how things were going to work, and knew everything there was to know about your particular situation, would you seek their advice? You know where I'm going with this, right? We have that. We have that in Jesus. And so if you're navigating things, whether it's COVID, or relationship problems, or bank account problems, or job problems, or health problems, Whatever it is that you're navigating in your life right now, and we are all navigating something or multiple somethings, right? There's one person that knows how to help you correctly navigate that in a way that will not only help you, but will bring life to the situation. We'll see as we study the life of Job, bringing life to the situation isn't always, oh, it gets easy and it's just taken care of. What it means. Like in the life of Job here, God takes that suffering and that pain that Job goes through and uses it to bring him to a place that he would never go on his own, to a higher place with God. You talk about athletes. Athletes can sit at home and watch a video on how to do a long jump or how to run or how to play football. Whatever it is that they're doing, they can watch a video and get a pretty good idea, but you got to get out and you have to do it, and the doing it is never easy. It takes you out of a comfort zone, and there's going to be sweat and pain and hurt and things that are going to go along with that, but through that, through that, you grow to a place to where now you can do it, and not only that, but better than ever, and be an example maybe to those other people. This is how God uses our pain and the trials that we go through to train us And to bring us to a place that we would never reach on our own. So this is all about the book of Job. This is where we are. If you missed any of the previous, so we're in week three right now. If you missed week one or two, we kind of lay the groundwork for what we're going through. Go back and check them out. You can do it. If you're online through Facebook or YouTube, check them out. Um, But you can go back there and look at the first two messages. Just to lay the groundwork for where we are. Because right now, we're going to jump right in. You remember... Last week, basically last week, the first part, and it's only the first five verses of Job. Job 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 5 is all we covered last week. And all of that was just to establish how upright of a guy, how much of a stand-up, blameless, if you will, guy that Job was. Job didn't have some fantastic hidden sin that nobody knew about, that God pinpointed and therefore was going to punish him. It wasn't a matter of Job straying from the path and having to be corrected. Job was as close to righteous and upright and in right relationship with God as anyone could possibly be. And so if you're of this mindset, you're thinking that what happens to Job, the whole patience and trial and pain and punishment, is all a matter of trying to correct and or punish Job For something that he did, then that's not the right way to look at this. Because as we'll find out, Job's friends, those who were closest to him and really should have known him the best, they made that assumption too. There's something hidden, and God is punishing you for that. We'll go into that in further weeks, but it's not a matter of that. We established Job is as close to upright as you can get. Now, that's all earthly realm. That's all things that we can see with our eyes. And so last week, the scene, if you will, was all just earthly descriptions of Job and the blessings and and where he was in his life and the things that God had blessed him with. Now though, we continue on. Chapter 1, we're still in chapter 1. We're going to do verses 6 through 12 today. And it's, the scene shifts. Again, if this were a movie like I talked about last week, we would now shift from earth to the throne room in heaven. So this is your mindset for where everything that happens today is we're in the throne room of heaven. Now remember, Job is, Job's living his life on earth. He's just doing what he does, and, and he's doing it pretty well, but he's oblivious to what is happening in heaven, what's happening in the spiritual realms, much like we are today. We are blessed that we don't see what's happening in the spiritual realms more often than not, and Job's no different. So let's jump right into the scripture. very first one for today is Job chapter 1, verse 6. We're going to be in this for a little bit right here. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Okay, we're going to camp out here for just a few minutes. And the reason we are is because I want to take a second. I'm always of the heart. I want to make sure that there's no stumbling block, there's no confusion, there's no... Um, there's nothing that's going to cause you to read a scripture and go, I don't know what they're talking about there. And so therefore you don't get the most out of it. Or worse yet, you just, I don't understand it, so I'm not going to try. I always try and remove some of those stumbling blocks, and this is one of them. And it doesn't seem very significant here, but the idea of the sons of God that we see right here. This is something that is debated and talked about and really pitched back and forth quite a bit. And it can become a stumbling block. So I want to take a second and address this, I call it a controversy, if you will, about who the sons of God are. Now, from our scene, we see we're in the throne room of God. I already told you that part. We're in the throne room of God. The sons of God present themselves before the Lord. The assumption can pretty easily be these are angels presenting themselves before the Lord. We're going to go a little deeper into this. A lot of people believe that the sons of God here are the same sons of God who are mentioned earlier, specifically in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read that to you here in just a few minutes. But this idea introduces two in Genesis here, introduces two things, sons of God and another term called Nephilim. Anybody ever heard the word ne- I heard it come uh oh, Nephilim. Okay, some people devote entire lifetimes to trying to figure out who the Nephilim are or were and looking at archaeological digs and looking for evidence and trying to piece things together. You're not alone. If you type the word, in fact, into Google, if you type the word Nephilim, you will be rewarded with 5,780,000 responses. That's a lot. And I would hazard a guess that many of those are on completely opposite pages of what a Nephilim is. Now, here's the good thing. If this is not something you're even interested in, who are the Nephilim, who are the sons of God, tune out. It doesn't matter for the theology of what we're talking about. In fact, it really doesn't matter much in the scheme of theology overall. But it is fun to talk about. It is something that can cause a little bit of a stumbling block. and it is something that can be significant in its way, but it doesn't change the meaning of the book of Job. I look at it as more of kind of an interesting or, or fun diversion. And I know there are a lot of you who kind of feel the same way. Um, and, and so I'm going to talk about that a little bit, but I have a resource. This is something new that I'm starting. Since I never want these things to be a stumbling block, I have started a new thing. It's on our YouTube channel, for those of you who are out there, and it's got its own um, playlist within the channel called Overtime. I uploaded the first Overtime video this morning. It's 15 minutes where all I do and all I'll do in the future is I address one specific topic. Today's was the Nephilim, and I just talk about it. Now, this isn't a college course. It's 15 minutes or sometimes even less but I'll go a little more in depth. So check out our YouTube channel, uh, Discover Community Church channel, and look for the overtime video if you want more info on this. But I'm going to give you a little snapshot right now. First of all, I'll just read Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4 for you. You can follow along. I use the New American Standard. Follow along if you want, but just listen to this. Again, Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, takes place after Adam and Eve and before the flood of Noah. It's kind of in there, right? Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and 20 years. Remember, prior to this, they were living hundreds of years long. And God says, that's too much. You get in too much trouble. The longer I let you live, the more trouble you're going to get into. We're going to limit this down to 120 years. Now, verse 4, the Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. This is the scripture, the second section of scripture that people use to debate and try and figure out and banter back and forth. Who are the Nephilim? Who are the sons of God? Are they the same thing? Are they one and the same? What is is happening here? Well, one major interpretation of this idea is that fallen angels came down to earth and mated with human women, creating this superhuman Race of giants. That is, I know some of you are going like, "What?" But the other half of you are going, "Absolutely, that's what happened." This is where we are on 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 this debate here. I believe, though, and there are many interpretations. I talk a little bit more about them in the overtime video, but I believe that the best interpretation, aside from a superhuman race of giants that aren't really talked about much else in Scripture is found in what's called the Sethite interpretation, Sethite interpretation. And I'm just going to share a snapshot of that. In the Sethite interpretation, the sons of God are descendants of Adam and Eve. Okay? They're descendants of Adam and Eve. Now, if you remember, Adam and Eve had two boys, their first children, two boys, right? Who are they? Cain and Abel. What immediately happened with these two brothers? Anybody have two boys as siblings or were you a sibling? What happens with two boys immediately? They immediately start fighting and having problems. Well, this is even a little bit more than that where Cain actually kills his brother Abel. Okay, we see that happening. Another message for another day, but this is what happens. God then promises, I am going to replace that which was lost to you and you will bear another son that son is named Seth he's the third of the the third of those original brothers the descendants of Seth now are called in scripture and there's more study on this but they are essentially called the the godly line okay they're godly people it says Seth was actually the first one to call upon the name of the lord so he and his descendants from that lineage are considered godly. okay. Call upon the name of the Lord. They're doing the right thing and they become kind of known as these sons of God. Now the other line, and there's always another line, right? The flip side are the descendants of Cain. Cain's descendants, born out of this place where he was jealous and in a rage and killed his brother, they're called Cainites. And this whole line of the Cainites are where the daughters of men come from. Okay, now, yes, there are sons also, but we're not so concerned with the sons now. It's the daughters here. They went on to found this, or, or to begin this essentially heathen, kind of idolatrous, sinful, warlike society. This Cainites, right? So, this is what we have. And what happens in this case is is absolutely predictable if you've been watching or reading scripture at all or you know your word or your history. You know that anytime God has a chosen, set-aside, holy people who are all set up to worship him and they know what they should do and then forget about all these guys over here who are sinful and idolatrous and this is the party tribe over here, what happens? Without fail, these guys go, well, it's boring over here. We're going to go over there and party with these guys without fail, throughout Scripture. And I believe this is what happened here. The Sethite sons of God are attracted to the women of the Canaanite civilization. They intermarry, intermingle, pick up sin and idolatry. And in context where you've been talking about the descendants of Cain and Abel and then Seth and that line, God becomes disgusted essentially with how sinful the earth has become and says, okay, now I need to send the flood, send the deluge to wipe this out so that we can start over. We know that Noah survives that, but the whole point leading up to this has been these people who are God's chosen people, and they stray, and they need to be corrected, and at this point, we're gonna start over. So this is where we are. Now, here's where it becomes confusing. After the flood, I'm trying to make this as quick as I can. After the flood, the term sons of God actually then becomes applied to angels. And then later on, the sons of God goes back to being applied to human beings again. The term Nephilim, or giants, becomes, after the flood this is, becomes applied basically to the more warlike tribes and people. Kind of like we would say now, well, he's a giant in his field, right? He's not literally a giant, But we're using that, hearkening that term to illustrate a point. So that's when we see this this Nephilim or giants used later. If you want to read Genesis 4 through 6, it kind of lays this out a little better. All of this for our purposes to say this, the sons of God here in Job are angels. Check out the overtime video if you want more on that. But let's go back, Job uh, Job chapter 1, verse 6 now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So where we are here, again I told you we're we're in heaven. Think of the scene in the throne room of God. Think of the parallels to the throne room of God to the throne room that any king or ruler at the time or even since would have. It's a throne room, it's got the throne for the king, and then the court, the inner circle, whether it was governors or different people, would come in every day and they would give a report to the king. They would come in and report to him. They would tend to him, they would help him with with anything that he needed, they would obviously worship him, praise him, um, but then surround him essentially, and that's what's happening here. The king's attendants or these inner circle are who the angels are. And in fact, in Daniel, Daniel 4.13 calls them watchers. It uses that word for angels, calls them watchers. And I think that's good in here because God is not unaware of what's happening around the world. But the angels would go out and they would kind of take the pulse and go around and see what needed to happen. And then they would come in and gather together either to give instruction or get instruction from God or just simply to report what was going on. This is the scene. Now, next verse there, Satan came among them. Seems very innocent, Satan, okay? So they, they were here and Satan was with them. It's more than that. That term, um, came among them, is a, is a Hebrew word that describes essentially uninvited guest. Okay, very clearly, he's an uninvited guest. He's allowed there, he can be there, but he wasn't really invited for this meeting, But he came anyway. Anybody know anyone like that? I'm not saying you have Satan at work. But Satan had then and still has access to the throne room of God. He has access. We won't see this until Revelation when he is actually then cast down from heaven and denied that access. But we know at this point and all the way right now today and on into the end times that Satan stands before God accusing us. And aren't we glad then that we have an intercessor? Can you imagine what it would be like to know that Satan is standing before God, pointing out all your flaws, all your sins, and there's nobody to intercede in your behalf? That's what Jesus is. He is our intercessor. And so that's the scene in heaven. But right now, we know that Satan is kind of out of place here. He's there if you look at your scripture, Satan was a was a cherubim type of an it's a type of an angel, cherubim, and the attendants were seraphim most likely. It doesn't say that in this scripture, but that's what a what an angel attendant was. By the way, anytime you see a Hebrew word ending in "I am," the letters "I am" that is plural, so it's it's a plural. We know that that's what that means now. Satan's clearly out of place. If you've read Revelation, you know that angels look differently. Some have multiple faces, multiple eyes, wings, all kinds of different things. It was clear, looking at this group, Satan was out of place. Now, the term Satan itself, let's look at that really quickly. Satan, we, when we say Satan, we're using it as a proper name for a certain person, right? That's, that's what we're a certain being. That's what we use Satan as a kind of a proper name for him. It really wasn't a proper name until much later. What it means, even in this scripture, is adversary, okay? It's a Hebrew word, hasatan, which means the adversary. And it's strictly just the idea of like in a, in a courtroom or somebody that you're, that you're arguing with, that's your adversary. And that is the Satan. Now, we know that Lucifer was his actual proper name. But here it Satan was with him, meaning the adversary was with them. So, also in this scripture, two forms of, of the proper name of God are used. And they're used intentionally. When it says, there was a day when the sons of God, that's one, came to present themselves before the Lord. That's the second one. Two different words there in Hebrew. The first one, God, is ha-Elohim. The second one, Lord, is Yahweh. And that's intentional. That's not accidental. It's used on purpose. Ha-Elohim is the plural form of God as judge and or ruler. In other words, the, he's in charge of, of this throne room, of this, of this court scene that we see. And it's also then plural as you see right that goes all the way back to genesis where it names elohim that's how we know that jesus okay and the holy spirit have been a part of this all along jesus isn't just some later addition but then it very quickly shifts into contrasting with the word lord as yahweh the sovereign god of israel the creator of heaven and earth and it's done that way intentionally to avoid any kind of confusion with these polytheistic gods that were out there. So there are a lot of cultures who had not just one God, but had many, many gods. Even in modern days. I've been to Haiti recently, and when you go to Haiti, they will accept Jesus in a second. They have no problem accepting Jesus. And the reason is, is because they'll accept anyone else that comes their way too. They're equal opportunity. They're like, hey, if we can gain anything by saying yes to Jesus, we will. But we also have all these other gods. And many, many cultures are like that, this polytheistic idea. This very quickly sets up God's sovereign authority. God is sovereign over this situation and over the earth. And this kind of preempts this idea that there's, when we see what happens next, this interaction between God and Satan, that somehow they're on equal footing. There are a lot of people who ascribe to this idea. That God and Satan are maybe not equal, but really close in power and stature. You see this image of God fighting Satan, and they're trading blow for blow, and they're both bloody, and they're both fighting. It is not like that, church. Satan can try. Satan certainly thinks that's who he is, but God could squash him like an ant at any point. It's not a matter of, whoa, Good one, Satan. You got me with that one. It doesn't happen like that. That idea that a lot of people ascribe to is a whole branch of theology that's called dualism. And it's heresy. And it says that God and Satan are equal parts of the same thing. Think of the idea in Buddhism of yin and yang. You've seen the symbol good and evil yin and yang, and they offset each other. And the power of the one is offset by the power of the other. And by that, they're in equilibrium. And that's what this is. That, is. that is dualism and that is a heresy. Not that that doesn't happen in some places in the world, but it certainly does not happen here. God's hands are not now or are they ever tied by some deal that he made with Satan, or some rules that he laid out. God is sovereign. He can do what he wants, when he wants. So, moving on. Job chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now, a couple things to take away. God is obviously in charge here. God is addressing this conversation. God is starting this idea. He is starting something with Satan. Satan's not coming there saying, I'm going to trick God into this. God initiates this, and he starts this. And he knows where Satan has been, by the way. But he's asking this question, again, to just illustrate. He is in charge. Now, we do know that Satan was given dominion over the earth. So when he says that I was roaming about the earth and walking around on it. We know that. In, in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of the earth. He's been given dominion there. 1 Peter 5.8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is what he does, and this is where he's been. Before this, after this, every day, that's what he does. Now, at this point, God lays out this sucker bet for Satan. Now, why does he do this? We're going to talk more about this as we go through. Why does God take somebody who we're going to see in Job upright and blameless and dangle him in front of Satan? Why does he do that? This is God's sovereignty. He knows ahead of time how this is going to work, and he's baiting Satan with this. And he's going to use it for many more reasons. This situation, we're going to see multi-layers of how God uses this situation. Job chapter 1, verse 8 says this. This is, the, this is the sucker bet. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now that word right there, if you're Satan and you're sitting there, And God says, he fears God and turns away from evil. That's like a jab at Satan. And Satan, very, very prideful, obviously, he's seen, he's had great success with Adam. He basically blew things up from the beginning, he thinks, with Adam. And he's had great success as you go along. So he's pretty full of himself. And he's thinking, okay, turn away from evil. We'll see. We'll see. This is where it's critical, I think, that we just take a quick second and just look at this word called omniscience. Omniscience of God. It's spelled omniscience. Omniscience of God. Webster's Dictionary defines the term omniscience like this. Having infinite awareness, understanding, and insight. Makes sense, right? Infinite. But what is that? Can we even wrap our mind around what that is? What it means in a nutshell is God knows everything. He has known everything from the beginning. Nothing is ever a surprise to God, nor does he ever learn something new. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? I love it. I hear a couple of chuckles. Nothing nothing ever catches God by surprise. He has always known. And what this means to you is this. When God makes a promise to you, he has already seen it fulfilled. He's not sitting there going, I hope this works out. He has seen the end, and he's seen it fulfilled. When God guides you down a path, he knows where it leads. There's no question. When God places you in a situation, and this is key, when God places you in a situation, he knows how you will respond. Think about that. You have free will to respond however you want, but God knows how you're going to respond because he's seen it. And this can clash, this idea of free will that we are gifted with from God. He doesn't want robots who just say, I love you, God, and worship. He wants people who do that freely out of their own hearts. And so this idea of free will is foundational to our understanding of a loving God, but that can seem to just collide with this idea of omniscience, of God knowing everything before it happens. Let me explain to you in, a, in just an illustration as best I can. It's a flawed human illustration, but let me follow along with me. Let's say you're a parrot and your stove or your, your cooktop has just exploded, it just blew up. You need to go get a new one. You go to the appliance store, and they show you this thing. It's an an infrared cooktop. And you've never seen one before. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. But you've never seen one before, and you look at it and go, oh, that's really cool. And they turn it on, and it glows red just like instantly. Anybody have one of these? Instantly glows red. You know you've never seen one of these infrared cooktops before, It's your first time, but you see that, and you immediately know, I am not putting my hand on that pretty red color because I know what happens. You know that. You've never seen it before, but you know exactly what's going to happen there. You know it's dangerous. Now, let's say you take this cooktop home, and you install it, and your small child is watching. You know your small child sees that red, and what are they going to say? Pretty. I want to touch it. And the more you tell them not to, the more they're going to want to touch it. All they know is that it's pretty and it's interesting, it's attractive, and they're going to want to touch it. You know that your child is going to be drawn to touch it. So what do you do as a good parent? You set up safeguards. Now, he's got an option. You'll even tell him, don't touch it. It's bad for you. It'll hurt you. But you know if you turn your back or walk away, what's going to happen? he's going to touch it. So as a good parent, you do this. You put in safeguards to keep them from making a bad decision. You put up a child gate, or you take away things they can climb on, or, or whatever it is, put them in the other room. You remove them from the possibility of making a bad decision. They can still do it, and more often than not, as soon as you tell them, no, don't touch, it's bad for you, I'm going to put you over here, what do they want? They will go to amazing lengths to overcome what you have put in the way in order to do the thing you told them not to do. Without fail, that's how it works. You know that he can't resist. You've told him not to. You've told him it was bad. You've put things in the way. But you know that he's going to want to. And left to his own devices, he will. And then when it happens, when they stubbornly overcome all these things and they do it anyway, you're going to say, I told you so. I told you it would hurt. It's the best illustration I can come up with because in that moment, in your child's mind, you are the smartest person that ever lived. And that only lasts for a year or two, so enjoy it if you're in there. After that, they immediately become smarter than you. But you seem like you know everything and have seen everything, even though at a human level, barely have we. But this is the omniscience of God. He knows the decisions we're going to make. He knows the things we're going to do when we're faced with certain decisions because he has seen it before. So when he puts safeguards in place, when he puts the Holy Spirit there to speak to you and show you a path to walk down, it's not because, hey, try this one out. I think this is better. He knows how it's going to work out. But not only that, but he knows that often we're going to choose the wrong path. And he sees how that ends too. This is how God, a loving God, can present Job to Satan and say, dangle him out there and say, do your best, because he knows how Job is going to respond. He knows how he's going to use it to not only teach the devil a lesson, but to elevate Job. He knows all these things. So this isn't a Well, let's see what happens. Let's play ping pong or beach ball with Job and just see what happens. He knows. And a loving God would not put Job in that situation unless he knew when it was all said and done, Job would be in a place that he never dreamed of being. That's what this is about. Job chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. If you remember last week, Job was was blessed. He was rich. He had a big family. He had a house. He had status. He had money, possessions. He had plenty of everything that he needed. Job was really, really blessed. And Satan, in this case, is saying, okay, I see Job. You're holding up. He's a pretty good guy. I'll give you that. But he's only that because you have given him so much. As soon as you take that away, that's going to change. So this is a twofold accusation here. The adversary is is he's claiming against God, first of all, that he's bought Job's loyalty somehow, that giving him these things... Blessing him in this way is buying his loyalty. And then the flip side of that is he's saying that Job, accusing Job, saying, he'll walk away from you the second this dries up. This is only because of what you give him. This is the accusation from Satan. Now, some will argue at this point that Satan, the adversary, really isn't even being a bad guy at this point. He's just pointing out the obvious. God is saying, hey, have you thought about Satan? And Satan's going, yeah, but I think he's only doing that because of what you do for him. Some people would be tempted to think that. But here's the thing. You would think he's just being a good prosecutor. That's what a good prosecutor does. Accept that Satan will use lies and deception and entrapment without shame to try and get you into that place. Revelation 12.10, much later, Satan's called the accuser of our brethren. He accuses them before our God day and night. This is what happens. And not only does he accuse you, but he tempts you to walk into this place where he can say, I got gotcha, you, and then accuse you before God. This is why we need Christ. We need an intercessor that stands on our behalf and pleads our case to God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we have this on screen too. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That phrase, so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, I have a huge news flash for you. It's not if, it's when. And we will need an intercessor. We will need an advocate to plead on our behalf. This is who Jesus Christ is. Now, this tactic, this is a tried and true tactic of Satan, to try and bait you into a decision, to tempt God, to try and, as it says in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, to sift you. Listen to this scripture. Simon, Simon, that's Peter. That's, that's Peter's other name. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you. These are the words of Jesus. Satan has asked to come after you. He wants to sift you like wheat. Why? Because he knows how powerful Peter's going to be. But Jesus says this, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is what happens. Satan is growing even more blatant all through time. He's growing more blatant and more confident, and he wants to ruin Peter before he becomes too dangerous. Now, remember, this, this scene right here happened right before Peter denied Jesus three times. So it was right before that. But even in this, even in that statement, it says, once you have turned again, not if, But as soon as we get through this and you turn back to me, you're going to strengthen your brothers. Jesus could have stopped it. He could have said, look, I just want you to sit right here so that you don't deny me and fail. But he knows he's going to use that thing that happens to Peter to bring him into a place where not only will he be stronger with Jesus, but that he'll be able to strengthen his brothers through the situation he's been through. It's a common thread through here. Job chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. But put forth your hand and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. That first part is Satan. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord immediately to get down to the business of doing what he can. Now, Satan takes the bait right away. God authorizes Satan to do all these things to test Job's faithfulness. Take away everything he counts on, everything that he considers a blessing, his children, his income, his house, his fields, everything that he has built himself up on Go ahead and take that away. Just don't touch his body. That's the bet right here. Now, that changes later, as we know. But right now, take away all this, and let's see what happens. Again, it's a sucker bet. God knows how this is going to work out. And in this, he's also laying out the rules kind of of spiritual warfare that Satan has to deal with. You can take away everything. There still has to be an option for him to make a choice. You can't put him underwater And he has to take a breath. You have to give him an option, whether to sin or to follow God. So he's laying that out there. Take everything away, still has to be an option. It also tells us one thing that's debated often Satan, yes, can make people sick. Satan can, yes, actually even kill them, only with God's permission. That's a hard concept to get our minds around. We'll explore that more in coming weeks. Remember, though, here's the thing. God is not concerned with how nice your house is, how big your bank account is, even how healthy you are, what you have. He is not concerned with your earthly possessions. He is concerned with your soul. That is his focus. And all of those things are tools that he can use either to bless you so that you can bless someone else or they can be tools that the enemy uses against you all of our stuff, up to and including our very health, is just a tool. God's priority is your soul and your eternity. But this is exactly where this spiritual battle lies. It's not an earthly battle. We spend so much time concerned with what we have here on earth and our earthly situation, when that is not where the real battle is. It's just a tool. You can't In most cases, you have very little say over what happens to you. We can try and toil and and strive and do all these things, but really it amounts to very little in the scheme of what happens to you. What we can decide 100% is how we respond to what happens to us. This is the story of Job. And your testimony lies in the balance Are you going to hang on to a testimony that when it's all said and done will allow you to help strengthen others like Peter? Or are you going to allow it to be taken away? This idea, this ability to maintain your integrity and your love for God and for others, especially when you're surrounded by trials and loss and pain, is what ultimately will set you apart. That's what sets you apart in the eyes of man. It's what makes you different. We all want to stand like like Job. We all want to stand blameless before God. We all do. But do you segment your life into parts? My Christian life, I go to church, I tithe, I read my Bible, I pray, I do all the, I might even volunteer and do other great things. uh, and, And my relationship with God is tight. And I can be blameless in that. Then I have this other part of my life that I segment, and this is is my fleshly, earthly part of life. This is where I rail against people I don't agree with. This is where I have anger for people who believe differently than me or have different color skin than I do or different backgrounds or beliefs or cultural values that I do. I'll rail against them, but then I have this other half of me that can stand blameless before God. We cannot ever fall into the lie that we can segment our lives like that. You are who you are, and you are who God made you to be, and you are made to be in the image of him, and that's how we should live our lives. Not this is the image I present, and this is the other image I present. Maybe on my fake social media page, so nobody knows who I am. God knows who you are. Gabe, My wife did a post, and in fact, I think it's on our loop that shows out in the foyer. It's just a little meme, just a funny meme, but it says, Would Jesus give your post a thumbs up? Would you post something on Facebook or social media or or any platform like that that you wouldn't say in front of Jesus? That you wouldn't say to somebody here in church? In the book of John, chapter 13, verses 34-35, It says this. Jesus is saying this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That doesn't mean just those who agree with you. In fact, especially, it means just the opposite. You believe in wearing masks? I don't. We can agree, and I'm going to love you anyway, or vice versa. Whichever side you fall on, how you fall on any topic or issue or belief or anything has nothing to do whether we should love one another or not. We are commanded to do that. And by that love, they will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. That's where I want to be. Church, you can do 99% of everything from an earthly standpoint correct, and then with one Facebook post, one Instagram meme, blow it up in the eyes of those who are watching you to see if you're any different than all the others. Make no mistake, there is nothing hidden, not only from the eyes of God, but people know who you are. There is no segmenting who you are. And the hard question then that I want to just leave you with is this. The words that you speak, text, post, or agree with tacitly by your silence. Agree with by maybe you like, I didn't say anything, I just gave it a thumbs up. By that, are you showing love for one another? Or are you showing just the opposite? So, the very last scripture Just the words of Jesus. Matthew 15, verse 11. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles a man. That's a whole study that we could do. But it defiles you. It makes you unclean. And it ruins your testimony. Your testimony is the ability to say, I have been through some stuff. The same stuff you've been through, maybe worse, maybe not, but I've been through some stuff too, and guess what? I love Jesus, and I love you, and we're going to get through this together. Any response other than that, and you are falling into this defiling character, that's what the devil wants to do. Next week. If you want to jump ahead next week, we're going to study Job chapter 1, verses 13 to 22. You can study ahead on that if you want. Don't forget to check out my overtime video if you want a little bit more info on the Nephilim. But let's just pray. Let's pray and close. Worship team, you guys can get ready. Let's just pray and close um, that we would live our lives that way, maintaining our testimony. So Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us everything that we need to stand against the lies of the enemy, everything that we need to be a reflection of who Jesus Christ is in our life. We have been given the written word. We have been given the Holy Spirit to testify and to guide us. We have been given Jesus Christ to intercede for us, to be our advocate, to be our hope. So, Lord, you have given us everything everything. And Lord, I repent of wasting that gift. I repent of taking those things for granted and falling into the ways of the world and to not showing the true love of Christ to everyone I meet. Lord, I don't want to be used by the enemy. I want to be used by you. I want my testimony to be one of being blameless before you. So Father, I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to take communion now. Um, If you're new here, if you're at home, grab your communion supplies. If you're new here on the back table, we have little self-serve communion cups. You can grab one of those. Let's take communion together. We also have prayer team in-house here. A couple ways if you need prayer. We have Uh, prayer team in the back. You'll know them by their lanyards. You can see them and get prayer if you need it for anything that you need it for. We also have the crosses with the cross cards that you can write a prayer on and pin up there. We'll pray through, pray over them throughout the week. Take advantage of that. Prayer is a way to have people come around, surround you, and to strengthen you in pursuing those things of God. Let's take communion together right now. The body of Christ, you know, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It's his broken body that makes us right with God. His the pain that he endured, took the price, took the punishment, took the judgment that we deserve onto himself. And by doing that, defeated forever the purposes of the enemy. The enemy has been defeated. And the only power he has now is the power we give him. Let's remind ourselves that through Christ, we have everything we need to defeat his plans. Take the body. The blood of Christ, scripture says, is the blood of the new covenant. That new covenant that Christ is and forever will be our intercessor and that we are washed clean of sin All that iniquity that separates us from God, Christ shed his blood for you. Take the blood. Father, we thank you for your truth, your wisdom, and your love.
1: We praise you
0: today and always in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.